Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. The gentleman on my show today, well, as you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the 80s. I graduated high school in the 80s. I graduated college in the 80s. And this gentleman was a huge part. He had a bunch of hits. He played Live Aid. He had one of the coolest videos on MTV. And he's still at it. And he has a tour coming up in Germany. And he has a tour coming up in England later in the year. And my nick is Nick Kershaw. How you doing, Nick? Hi, Steve. I'm a good man. How are you? I'm doing well. So you have the concerts coming up. How do you prepare? It's it's because you missed that whole, we missed the chump. You know, when I talked to a lot of musicians, we missed that whole chump because of COVID. So now you're yeah. coming back and you're you're taking the, the the tour out in Germany. How do you get ready to tour? Well, I guess there are, I mean, I, I think like everyone else, when, when COVID stopped, I, I, I kind of, locked myself away and just made sure I remembered which end of the guitar to hold and 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 the old tunes and it turns out it is kind of like riding a bike in in that you you, you don't forget it's it's just a lot of the songs are just ingrained in there so I, I guess about two thirds of the show doesn't need any particular um, preparation but yeah I I will be changing the set for these these two uh, little tours so um. And there will it will involve playing a couple of songs that I've never played before live and stuff. So, we, yeah, I'll have to get get stuck into that and and get the band up to speed as well. Yeah, does that get you nervous when you play a song you never played? Because I did stand up comedy for many years and I just got back into it. I have a few shows coming up, and I did an open mic the other night and I was nervous. And I'm like, I did over twenty five hundred shows and I'm trying new stuff because we grow and we're not going to do stuff. I'm not going to do material I did when I was twenty four. But do, do you get nervous, like, in your head? You, you know the crowd's going to like it, but do you sit there and do you get a little intimidated going on, playing the song for the first time live? They're going to love the other stuff, but what, what is it for you like? Yeah, the, you, you do. I mean, I get nervous anyway, even playing the old, walking on stage to play the old tunes. I, I still get nervous. But the new the new ones uh, have their own challenges, yeah, in, in, in that you're not kind of match fit if you like, with, with those songs. You just get used to playing the songs and, and it doesn't matter how many times you rehearse them, playing them in front of a crowd in the in the heat of battle is, is, is a completely different thing. So it takes a few shows to get them out of the way and, to, and to, for everybody to get comfortable with it, yeah. But um, and, and sometimes nobody ever gets comfortable with them. Some, some, sometimes you just have to go, oh, this one just isn't working. Let's, let's dump it and move on. Now, when when did you start playing music? I believe your your father or mother was a flautist. My father. Okay, so and then so did did you? So I guess you grew up with music around your household. I mean, how was your course of action to be getting into music? Um, it was always around. Um, my mum was a singer. She sung um, uh, operatic and leader um, stuff. So she was. You know, she'd be cooking the dinner, and the Hallelujah chorus would be coming out of the kitchen, and and stuff like that. So it's always around. But I, I wasn't that, you know, like any sort of young kid. I'd, I'd rather play football and play with my Lego, and and then I wasn't really that interested until I was sort of early teens, I guess, um, when I started discovering my own, you know, music, and that there was there was music that didn't you know wasn't actually catered for in my my parents record collection of five records <laughs> <laughs> well, who, who are some of your influences i had an older brother so he turned me on to some you know the classic rock and stuff like that but who were some of your influences because you're in you're in england i'm over here we have different influences yeah. but who were you listening to like when you who sat there and you went wow just oh my god well, it, it, it kind of went all over the place, really. I was, um, I went through various phases to do with fashion and to do with what a particular tribe I was trying to join at the time. Um, but, but early on, yeah, I guess it was glam rock, and it was. I mean, Bowie was 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 a huge wow moment when I when I saw him and I, I heard what he was up to. That would have been the kind of Aladdin Sane kind of time. But then at various stages I went through, I was I was a skinhead at one point, so then I, I was obliged to listen to Slade and, and a lot of reggae. Then I had my prog phase, then I had my... So it was like Genesis and, and, and Yes and King Crimson and stuff. And then I kind of went 
into my um then it was before, no, before that was probably deep purple and zeppelin and and alice cooper um and then i kind of got into a, a, a jazz fusion band and 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 it was like steely dan and weather report and so but by the time i, I kind of started writing in earnest and, and doing my own thing i had all that going on as well as kind of the stuff i played at dinner at, in in some function gigs that we did sort of Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, you name it, we played it. So it was all in there. So when do you start sitting there and saying, I'm going to make this my life? I mean, you're playing in bands, but when do you sit there and say, I, I want to be a musician? Because it's a, a big thing. Like when I graduated college, I wanted to do comedy. And my parents said, take this class. We'll show you how to get into the business. And I had to work on yeah. it. And it was, it's a process. For you, when did you sit there and say, I want to do this. This is what my life calling is. That would have been the Bowie moment. That would have been when I, when I first saw Bowie. And I, I would have been about 15, I guess. And a, a friend of mine had just got um, a guitar and I was hanging out at, at his place and, and, and picking up his guitar. And I mean, I, before that, I, I still wanted to be the center of attention. I went through a period of wanting to be a, an actor um, or a or you know the usual things of score the winning goal in the FA Cup final or, or a racing car driver you know but no, nothing too mundane in it. it just anything that involves showing off really um and then I thought well I can and then I, I discovered I could actually do it and that I had some kind of talent for it so I thought wow this, this and I was rubbish at school at anything else so I thought the only way I'm going to make anything of myself in life is is to is is to pursue this. Um, so yeah, I would have been about 15 years old when I decided I was going to play music and write my own music and and do that for a living. Now, how did you get to that point? When did you start getting into being Nick Kershaw? I mean, you know, it's a matter of I know you looked in a paper and found a manager. Or, I mean, because now everything's on the internet. Like, back then, there was actually... People don't understand when you go, you had to send a tape, or you had to look at a paper. Now you can just go, yeah. oh, I can go to this website, and I can learn how to do this. Well, how did you How did you actually break into the music business? Well, that that was quite a long process, as it turned out. Because, I mean, first of all, I was in school bands, then I had sort of my own band that we, we used to spend a lot of time practicing and going down the pub and trying to think of names for the band and stuff. Um then I went through a phase of um, uh, actually earning a living in a functions band and um, um, playing music for a living. Um, and then there was a period of um, unemployment, shall we say, uh, which is quite a productive period for me because I did a lot of writing and, and, and demoing during that period. And then there was the period of making demos and hoiking them around record companies and getting reject rejection slips and there was the period of nearly giving up and and then the period of getting lucky and finding a manager and him getting me a deal right and that was that the whole process i guess took about eight years possibly what made you not give up like you know so many people they get rejection and, and in any mm. kind of entertainment business it's tough and it's more rejection than salespeople get. It's and it's brutal because you have you know your yeah. craft is good. What made you at that when you were sitting there down on your luck? What made you decide I'm not giving up? I think it was just youthful kind of bravado or, or just the belief that you know I get I'd get re rejection slips and I'd read them and I'd go, no, you're wrong, <laughs> you're wrong, I'm right. I was just absolutely positive that that it was going to happen. I mean, right from the age of, of, of like 17 or 18 years old, I, when I flunked out of school, I was completely sure that it was going to happen. I had no doubt in my mind. I and mean, it's only when you look back and you realise how lucky you got in the end. But, um, but yeah, so it, it didn't matter how many people were going to tell me that, you know, whether my teachers were telling me I was an idiot and it was never going to amount to anything and... Or whether it was my record company executives telling me I just didn't, I wasn't commercial enough, or whatever. Um, I, you just took took it on the chin and got got on with it because um, it, even when I was, you know, struggling get, to get a deal, there was I, I thought there was a, there was a long way to go before I was going to give up. There was a long 
road to travel before I was going to finally hang up my boots, you know. So, um, yeah, I just totally believed it was going to happen. And then, fortunately, I found another, you know, someone else who thought it was going to happen. And, and then a whole bunch of people that thought it was going to happen, and all of a sudden it happens. How, how, how was that manager? What did that manager, do you ever talk to Do you ever talk to him and say, what did he saw on you? Or how did you start the relationship with your first manager that really helped you out? Um, yeah, he must have. Obviously, he must have said, I've never had that conversation in retrospect. To be honest, um, but but that's happened to me with with a few people over the years. They've, they've kind of obviously seen something me that I'm, I'm maybe didn't even see myself. I'm, I, 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 there was a keyboard player called Reg Webb who 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 basically let me into his jazz fusion band because he he saw what I was capable of, even though, even though I was struggling every 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 week to try and figure out what the hell everybody else was playing. You know, it was a real kind of I was right on the edge of my capabilities, but he he really stuck with it, and um, so it, it, he was one one guy who did. And then Mickey, my manager, he he just turns up. He'd, he'd already he was already managing um, Nine Below Zero, um, so he'd, he'd done it for someone else. And I don't know. He just he, I don't know what he saw I, I, because I, I sent him some very basic demos and a pretty dreadful picture of me <laughs> with the. <laughs> not looking even vaguely cool um but he saw something i don't know what it was and just a little uh, he, he, he to, to the extent i don't know what it is it, what made him answer the, the advert in the first place and neither does he because it was just in the back of melody maker along with all the kind of loon pants and bass bass player needs work <laughs> and someone trying to sell a Marshall amp, you know, and there I was. And he just, he just looked at it and, th and, and had a feeling about the advert and, and sent me, sent me a letter, letter. How about that? that. <laughs> <laughs> Came in the mail through the post box. Isn't that crazy when you think about it? Like, you know, I mean, it, it just blows my mind how kids have it so much younger, easier now. They just don't get it. It's like, I remember, yeah, sending letters. Like, hey, when I moved to LA, yeah. I was trying to get agents for screenwriting and you would send a letter and you would get the rejection letter and you put it on your wall and go, I'm going to, I'm going to do better than this. But now it's just like you get an email and you just delete it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. No, to the extent that when I was, I remember when I was negotiating my first record deal and I was, I, 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 I had to, to talk to my lawyer. I, I had to do it from the phone box at the bottom of the, of the road. <laughs> So it had to be an, at, at an appointed time. I used to have to stand outside the phone box and wait for the phone to ring uh, so I could talk to my solicitor. Yeah, it's all pretty. How did that first record deal come about? How did that first record come? Because the record was a big hit. How did that all come into place for you? Well, originally, my first deal with MCA was a, was a singles deal, and we went through various little false starts. I, I, I went in and recorded a few tracks with a producer called Dan Priest, which they they didn't like very much. I actually recorded two tracks with Rupert Hine, who was Howard Jones's um, producer, which I loved, but they didn't. Or MCA, Charlie Era, MCA did, didn't. Like. Real quick, what did you love about him? What did you love about those early? I don't know. I think because the trouble is, I don't have copies of them. I, in fact, I was I was I was in contact with the engineer from those sessions. Um, a few weeks ago, asking if he had a copy of of of, of that recording because I remember loving it so much and being like, "This is it! This is fantastic! We're going to do the whole album with Rupert," and then being horribly disappointed when the record company said no. Um, so I can't. It just sounded really classy. Uh, that's all I can tell you. It was it was it was two songs. It was I won't let the sun go down on me and a and a B side and I can't remember what the B side was, but. Um, yeah, so that I, I can't answer that question because I don't remember exactly what it sounded like, and I've got no evidence existing. Okay, so back, so so you recorded with Rupert, and they say no go. So then what happens? Yeah. So then I suggested Peter Collins, and um, I didn't know much about Peter at all, other than he um, produced uh, a number one hit for um, Musical Youth. That's past the Duchy. Um, which I thought, okay, well, that's not really what I do, but all right, let's. Um, but then I found sort of other stuff that he'd done, and I thought, oh, this is yeah, this is this is really good. 
um so we had a chat and we got on really well and and i don't ever remember there being a kind of much of a conversation about it it was kind of oh you're going to produce my my album and let's let's go and it was the whole process was very peter is very um very organized incredibly organized and and he'll he'll you go into the studio at 11 o'clock in the morning and you'll you'll come out at eight o'clock at night and that's it he doesn't no exceptions you there was one exception which i might tell you about later but um and then you worked you worked from that time you had lunch at this time and um it most of the process was me re just re-recording the demos um and the, the things that i played on the demo and basically we if we got stuck or there's something i couldn't play then the then peter got on he got got his file of facts out and looked at his telephone numbers and, and said well what about what about um Wix Wickens on keyboards. Let's get him in to do a bit of programming and a bit of playing and play. And just got, gradually got people in. Charlie Morgan on drums. Um, and it just it was just a really kind of kind of matter of fact process. The whole thing. And I think the first album took about ten weeks. I guess so. so that's a week per track finished and mixed, which is quite extraordinary. Really, I wish I, I wish I could do that now. <laughs> it takes me years to. Produce anything. So, so the album gets done. When do you when do you first hear yourself on the on the radio? Do you remember after the album? Was it a while or when? Because that must I always think for an artist that must be a great feeling that you put on the radio and you're mm. coming out of it. Do you remember when you first heard yourself on the radio? Yes, I do. And it wasn't the first single. Either. The first single was "I Won't Let the Sun Go Down on Me," and it, it didn't. It, it did okay, and it got me my name around the industry. And I, I, I did a little tour of radio stations and stuff like that. And it was being played on the radio because I was there when, when they were playing it. But actually, being caught unawares in out in public somewhere, and my song coming on the radio—that was wouldn't it be good in the January of 1984 when I was sitting in a cab in London. Um, just driving along and, and Radio 1 was on in this cab and, and Wouldn't It Be Good came on and I was like, wow, <laughs> this <laughs> is you, really cool. Did you tell the driver, it's me, that's me. <laughs> no, no, you got to be careful getting into conversation with, with London cab drivers because you don't know where it's going to lead. So <laughs> so, so you have the, the album starts taking off. Now, the video, and I, I, I'm an MTV guy. I remember when MTV came out. Wouldn't yeah. it be good the video? You gotta tell me about that video because that suit, you know, like it, it was just it was different. I mean, and back then I had hair too. Back then we all had that eighties hair, yeah. you know. But what do you take away from the video? Because video really helped. Video helped so many people break in America that we weren't too familiar with. Because we all, I mean, MTV. You would sit there and you. I mean, when I was in college when that came out. We come back from partying and we'd have watched MTV. How, what was what was your take on making that video? Was it a pain in the ass to you, or was it something you liked? Because it's a long day. People don't get people who never been involved. Oh yeah, it's, oh, it's, absolutely. It's, in the trailer, but tell me about the video. And did you have any idea with the concept and that that suit that like you were an alien? I guess I, it's it was it was a crazy video. Yeah, it was all well. It's all very early days for me. So. It, having that kind of attention lavished on me and all these people running about and lighting technicians and makeup artists and set designers and whatever it was it, I, I loved it yeah it was it was me being the center of attention again I, I, so uh, but but yeah what people don't realize if, if if they say like it's a day's shoot they mean a day they mean 24 hours or, or probably longer so and this one was a, a couple of days i think i can't remember but it was it was filmed in a disused um, building just just next to Buckingham Palace, believe it or not, and it was being renovated or whatever, and, and we managed to get in there. So there was no heating or anything. It was in, I think it was filmed in January. No, it couldn't have been. It must have been filmed the year before. It must have been filmed this like December, November, the year before. It was freezing cold. Um, the suit that I had to wear was incredibly uncomfortable because it was made out of this. It was just this calico suit with with tape stuck all over it with reflective tape because they didn't have green screen in those days. Um, and just and it kept falling to pieces. Um, 
and the last bit I remember was was filmed with the with the kind of observatory was was filmed in Cambridge University Observatory, which, and that was like yeah that was kind of dusk the day after and it was just I just remember it being absolutely freezing cold and and horribly uncomfortable but but fun <laughs> now now when a video becomes popular do people start recognizing you because people video was such a big medium then I mean when did you start getting recognized that damn quite quickly I mean more more quickly than you'd imagine because it wasn't just the video I think I you know the UK is not a big place. It's 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 um, and there were only three television stations at the time. I think so. Well, there might have been the fourth one by that time. But if you're if you're on the BBC quite a lot, and I was, I was on top of the pops and and whatever. It's going to pretty much every household. It's not just going to a couple of million anymore. The, you know the viewing figures for these things were huge because nobody had internet or YouTube to look at. Um. So yeah, I I I started getting recognised quite early on. In fact, it became it it went from the January of 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 nineteen eighty four to I let, by the March I probably couldn't leave my house without a disguise or a bodyguard. It was insane. It was absolutely insane. That must be uncomfortable. You know, you think about it. We we take for granted just being able to walk out. Like I can just walk out and go to the yeah. food bar supermarket. For you. Does it affect you mentally? Because all of a sudden you're holed up. You're you're not you're not the Nick going out to the pub and have a beer or whatever. Yeah. I mean, how did it affect you mentally? It it is quite bewildering. I mean, it is. It's like I said, be careful what you wish for. I mean, it's exactly what I, this is what I wanted. This is my dream. This is, I was this is me living my dream. Um, but yeah, you're just not you're not ready for the freedoms that you lose. Is quite it's quite astonishing. I mean, you know, you might, you might not sound a big thing going to the supermarket, but when you can't do it, it's a it's a big thing. <laughs> um, and you have to go. Someone has to go and get it for you. Know, if you want a pint of milk, someone has to go and get that for you. And it's just it's just life becomes really difficult. And and also at the beginning, you don't have any money either. So you it's like what. <laughs> What are the benefits to this? <laughs> so I'm just getting stopped in the street. I'm getting jumped on. I'm getting me um, clothes ripped. I'm getting sort of, you know, physically assaulted, <laughs> uh, which might sound fun, but I, I have to say, you can, it's quite terrifying. Um, and I haven't even got, you know, I haven't got a pot, pot to piss in. Really, it's just this is like, what are the benefits? But and obviously they came, they came later. There's when the royalties started coming in and, and, and whatever. So the, the rewards are huge, but you, you, you don't appreciate the, what you lose until, until it actually happens. And of course you can't moan about it. I mean, who you're living the life everybody's dreaming about. You start going up in there and saying, Oh, my life's so miserable. So I can't well, go to go to the shops. And I said, really? Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned top of the pops and, and being, you know, you're from England you probably watched that your whole life. What yeah. is what is it like? Tell me that. How many times did you do it? Oh, I don't know. Oh God, um, twenty or so times. What was what was the first time like? Do they call you and say, "Hey, you're going to be on top of the pops," or does your manager go, "Hey"? I mean, tell me what went on because that's just that's such a it was such a huge huge show, and for artists, it, was, it yeah. must be full cycle. Like, oh my God, I'm on top of the pops. Yeah, it, it was the it was the one. It was an incredibly powerful show. It, it it was if you didn't get top of the pops, you didn't get a hit basically, or you got you might have got a minor hit, but you didn't you didn't you didn't get top ten without some kind of help from top of the pops. So every um, I've forgotten when the, the chronology of it and when when the chart was announced, but people used to get the midweek results and 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 I think it was announced on a Tuesday. For some reason, lunchtime on a Tuesday, I seem to remember, and Top of the Pops is on a Thursday, so you wouldn't know until the the evening of the Monday because the, the 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 industry knew the chart on by by then, um, and then you're the people that work for the record for the record company. The the we had independent TV pluggers, I think we we employed, so we had basically people that they're queuing up outside the offices of of of, of the BBC 
you know, top of the pops office, um, trying to sell you to top of the pops and say, look, look, he's gone up three places. He really should be on and all this kind of stuff going on. And, um, they either get you on top of the pops or they don't. So you'll, you'll get the phone call on the Tuesday morning, basically saying <clears throat> you're on top of the pops on Thursday. And it was, was it live? It wasn't live when I first, no, when I first started doing it, it wasn't live. So, um, it would have been recorded on the Wednesday. And then it would transmit on the Thursday. Now, is it was it exciting when you do you remember that first time when you went? I mean, you did it a bunch of times. Do you remember that first time where you're like, "Holy shit, I'm on top of the pops." It, it was, but it's like everything else in in, in this business. It, 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 it everything looks more amazing than it actually. It's they're like it's like a mirage, really, because the closer you get to to everything, the kind of it, it kind of disappears. It's like where is it's like oh. You know, people say to you, oh, it must be really glamorous being, being doing that and going to film premieres and, and walking down red carpets and stuff like that. And when you, when, you, when you get there, it's like, you know, well, I'm getting out of a car and there's a carpet and there's, <laughs> that's it. There's nothing magical about it. Um, so when you get to Top of the Pops for the first time, the first thing that hits you is how small the studio is because it was in... BBC Television Centre in Wood Lane when I started doing it, which is a tiny little studio with maybe, I mean, all these hundreds of people that you think are in the in the crowd. There's about twenty, possibly, <laughs> who all heard it about in front of the cameras, and it's just a bit. And there's sort of like stages started about the studio, um, and it's just, it's all quite. I mean, it's exciting because that's what you, you, you're doing. It. You, it's, it's just impossible to equate what you're, where you are, to what you're you used to watching every Thursday night and on the TV. You know, because it's like, well, this is just, it's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. Of course, it was exciting. It was. It was great. And and you, I can't remember who was on when I when I did it. But then you, you, you but all of a sudden you're mixing with the the, you know, the great and the good of the of the music business. Now, after a bunch of times, does it get a little, does it lose that energy? Like, does it lose the excitement? Cause you're like, Oh, I'm doing top of the pops again. Oh, no. I mean, you said you did it a bunch of times. I mean, I could imagine it's like anything. The first five times you're probably like, yeah, yeah. And then after a while you're like, I've been here, done that. I mean, it must be a weird feeling. Well, not really. Cause it's, I mean, you're promoting a different song and I kind of, did, I did the first few on my own, which was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying, and and I have to say, when it, when you look back, it looked pretty ridiculous because there's all this racket coming coming over, and just one geezer with a keyboard, and you know, it, which is really silly because I'm a guitar player as well. So that's the it was just very odd. So when I started doing it with the band, that was kind of a bit more fun and a bit more relaxed thing. But then it kind of it, it changed over the years. The, the top of the the top of the pops. Then it was live, so you'd have you know. You'd have that little frisson of of um, this is actually going out to the nation right now. You'd have that going on, which is quite exciting. Um, and um, I don't know. There was all something. There was something different about everyone. You'd be on with different acts. You'd be. You don't know who you're going to bump into. Um, so no, I it never got boring. I have to say that. Now you played Live Aid, and, and one of the regrets I have is I, I I grew up and I still I live now uh, back I moved back from the West Coast I lived grew up 15 minutes from Philadelphia, um, I still regret I never went to see Live Aid I was it was at yeah. in Philly it could be right across the bridge, you yeah. played it I want to hear about your experience because I've talked to so many people who've played it and they and they said it was magical but how did you end up on on Live Aid because you weren't on the you weren't on the record, no. I wasn't because I, I was I kind of a new boy when Band Aid record came out, um, and I think the people on that record were basically the people in in Midge or or Bob's address books that were because they literally got on the phone and started phoning people, and I wasn't part of that that thing. So I I, I got involved because I was I was doing a a German TV festival pop festival thing um, and and. I was at Heathrow Airport, and there was a bunch of us doing this this one show. And for some reason, Bob was Bob Geldof was there, just sort of loitering. Um, and he just came up. He just walked up to me and said, "Do you want to 
do a gig. We're going to do a gig. You know about Band Aid? I said, yeah, of course I know about Band Aid. So well, we're going to do a gig. Um, do you fancy doing it? So yeah, great. Okay, and it was going to be in the summer. So at that stage, it was going to be I don't know, Hammersmith, Odeon, or the Apollo, whatever it's called now. Um, and then it it was yeah, hang on, it's going to it's going to have to be the arena because it's got Wembley Arena because it's getting a bit bigger. And then it was oh hang on a minute, it's going to Wembley Stadium. And then it was two billion people on on television. And then it was it just I would just watched it from afar getting crazier and crazier and bigger and bigger and consequently getting more and more nervous as the day approached but yeah that's how I first got involved so the day comes mm. take me back to that day because it's funny Kenny Jones said he said he took like a limo and he took a helicopter and then he yeah. went and then he came back to his house because he met the queen oh no he met Lady Di and then he came back and he said it was just and to me that's just like he's just talking like that's all in a day i'm like oh rolls royce to a helicopter that's nothing i've ever done but what was your, what was your day like when you did it i mean and just were you just it must be as an artist it must have just been fascination because there's so much talent yeah i can i'll tell you what i remember what i genuinely remember because this is this, this I, I, you'll appreciate i get asked about it a lot so i was um I'm not sure how much I've made up over the years <laughs> or how much actually happened, but I, I'm pretty sure these things happened. Yes, we, I think a lot of us went by helicopter because they were panicking about getting pe the traffic that was going to be around Wembley Stadium uh, and getting people to the to the venue. So we, we flew a helicopter to a, a playing field that was quite close by. I just remember everybody getting off these helicopters and there were like people playing football going, What's going on? <laughs> and then, then jumping in a limo to get to the the, the conference centre, which is just adjacent to the the stadium where most of the dressing rooms were and stuff like that. And then being walked over to the to the stadium to meet Prince Charles, as he was, and um, Lady Di uh, Princess Diana, sitting in the royal box watching um, status quo kick it all off. Um, and then me thinking, what's the protocol of leaving the royal box if if the prince and the princess are still in the royal box? Do, what, do I have to curtsy and walk backwards? I don't know what the, the thing is. I think fortunately they left before I had to go, so that that, that solved that problem. I remember hanging up, hanging out backstage. There were like three porter cabins. Um, uh, you didn't have actual dressing rooms, but they were basically three porter cabins that was you know, people went were get, getting in and out of. So um, I was there backstage, and I remember talking to Sting about he just released the Dream of Blue Turtles album, and I'm talking to him about that album and how much I enjoyed the album, and he talked about how much fun it was to make it and stuff like this. At which point I was. I must have been reasonably coherent, but I remember just being incredibly nervous from all day, but I must have had enough, you know, I must have been able to string a sentence together at least. Um, and then somehow we ended up on stage. I just remember standing on at the side of the stage, knowing that there, there was a, 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 it's a circular stage and there were three stages. Um, one of the act on stage, one was, breaking down the, the, the equipment and one was setting up the equipment um, and I knew this stage was supposed to revolve and it, it did revolve but it only revolved by the dint of the fact that there were people pushing it around <laughs> at the bottom because it had broken down so the, I knew there were things going wrong left right and centre and I, I I hadn't seen my, my crew I didn't know if my equipment was going to be on stage I didn't know how much of it's going to be working so you just walk on and there's like you just pray that you that it's going to work, and I, I and I don't know how my legs carried me on either. I don't remember the process of actually walking from the side of the stage out front to my microphone because um, it, I I must have just been in a kind of a an altered state to to get there because I was li literally ter terrified. And I remember playing and thinking I can't hear anything. I can I can hear my vocal. And I hear a bit of guitar and a bit of drums, but okay, that that's enough. I can, I, I, I'm pretty sure I know where I am. That's fine. Um, 
I remember the terrifying moment. I I realised I didn't know the words to the second verse of of um, "Wouldn't It Be Good," um, and they never came to me. So I made I repeated the first verse. Um, I remember, yeah, hanging up, hanging out backstage with um, with various people. I remember Tony Hadley standing up in the Royal Box asking if anybody wanted a, wanted a pint. <laughs> Everybody stuck their hands up. Says, "Oh." So he goes off and comes back with trays of, of beers. It's like amazing. Remember watching Bowie um, and Queen. I remember watching Queen from the Royal Box and, and knowing then how special that 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 I was a, a witness of something really special. Just just that twenty minutes was quite extraordinary. Now does does uh, a I'm sorry I was gonna say does a, a an event like that jump does that jump your record sales do people see you and start buying more sales because they you know because we saw it in the U S everyone everyone saw it does that did yeah. you notice an influx and like you're thinking oh, I'm gonna get some nice royalties I didn't know I mean we all we got we we all were kind of aware of the fact that you know it wasn't about us I mean it was impossible not to. To, to be in the moment and realize this was a big deal and people were you you were going to get noticed you know if, if you weren't being noticed before it was it was it was a great honor and great privilege to be in that kind of company um and there was a point at which bowie come came off stage early so we to show the original there was a, a michael burke a documentary about ethiopia that started the whole process for bob geldof and they show, remember them showing that and the whole crowd going quiet and at that point everybody realizing yeah we're having a really good time but ah this this is why we're here so that was there was all that going on as well i i wasn't aware of i don't know there might be statisticians out there that that can tell you whether the the sales went up or anything i don't think that was particularly in 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 anybody's mind one one thing that did I know it did bring me to the attention of Miles Davis. That's that's all. That's all I do know, because I got I got contacted by him afterwards, um, because of because of that. I mean, and that's enough for me, you know. So Miles Davis, I I, I was on Miles Davis's radar. That's pretty insane. But did he Did he call you? It was, it was, it was weird because he I, I was recording um, a video for. Um, Don Quixote in 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 Spain, and we got back to the hotel and there was a there was a message uh, saying, "Can you call Miles Davis?" and with a, with a number. And I'm like, "Yeah, right. <laughs> Good try." <laughs> so so I didn't bother with it. Um, but and then and then um, we were playing with Paul Young at the pier in New York, and I come off stage. And there's Miles Davis standing at the, at the side of the stage, and and we have a chat and um, and what little I did understand, I have to be honest, <laughs> um, I got a good, you know, I found out that he liked my shit, which was nice, um, and and at that point he wanted me to write some stuff for him, and it's like, wow, really, is this this is insane, um, and but I think he died a couple of years after that. He, he wasn't, yeah. But apparently, when he died, he was he was his band were routining a version of Don Quixote because he loved that song, and that's the one that I, I played it on Live Aid. It kind of got him into it. Now you said he wanted you, you to write for him. You've written for a lot of other artists. How does that come about? How do, do people? I mean, I know you we work with Elton John, which must be amazing. But do people just sit there and go, "Hey, like, do people?" like your stuff and then they call you how does how does someone get say recruited because that's what it is or they're saying come yeah. by this how did how did that how did you slip into that part of your career well i didn't know how it worked either so i kind of it was it was all a bit of an adventure for me and 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 um and, and initially i just wrote songs and um put them on my shelf and took them to my publisher and and people came walked walked along and said i'll have that one which is what happened with the one and only and Chesney Hawks, because uh, that was already written. Um, but that doesn't happen very often. So, so often I think it was, uh, yeah, you, you might get a call. You might, or your publisher might get a call. Um, 
your publisher would be aware of who's looking for songs and they might contact you saying so and so is looking have you got anything and then you say you say yes or no or i can write something or something like that you might even you know or so and so has got an album coming out he wants to do some co-writing do you want to write with him and i'll do that um i, I wrote with quite a few up-and-coming artists and uh with songs that never saw the light of day which is which is you know you you you, you a couple of occasions I recorded whole albums with 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 people, and then the, there was a change in hierarchy at the record company, and the artist got dropped, and the project got shelved, and um, which is why I've been um, releasing uh, EPs called Songs from the Shelf. Um, these are just songs that have just been sitting on my shelf that I thought, well, might as well, you know, bring them out in public. Um, so there's loads of ways, but I, I it, it was always a struggle, and it's always quite political to to get in, you know, onto a project. Or and and there was, there was a lot of because there's you know there's a lot of lot of chat, and nothing ever happens afterwards. So it's just um, I don't have meetings anymore. Um, yeah, and ultimately it proved to be quite a frustrating uh, experience in that you never get to see a project all the way through to its conclusion. Um, and I had ideas that coming again that were just kind of well nobody's going to sing that that's just to me you know so I'll I either put it I'll, I might put it on a shelf and then or, or record it just to get it out of the way and then I found that I had like ten tracks and or maybe I should do an album I don't know and that's what happened in 1999 when when I brought out 15 minutes now when you write for someone else. When you write for you, you're writing for you. When you write for someone else, do you have to put yourself sort of in a different time frame? Because I've written comedy for people before, and mm. you got to think of their character. Like, I wouldn't say this, but they would say this. And I had a friend who wrote for kids shows in L.A., and yeah. he doesn't have kids, so I'm like, that's really sweet. He can write that. So, yeah. but how for you when you write for someone else? Do you listen to them, and do you sit there and go? I wouldn't record this, but they would. I always wonder because it's like if you write a gem, you probably want to keep it. Well, that's the, the <laughs> that's that's the issue. I, that, that's why I, I stopped doing it because I found myself, uh, you know, sort of few years in, I found myself having a great. You know, the the session is not going very. You're sitting there, you're staring at someone else across the room with an acoustic guitar, and nothing's happening. Then you have a brilliant idea, and you think, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> shall I share this with the room or shall I keep this to myself um, and I ended up keeping them to myself so I thought well this is not the right job for you Nick this, you're going to have to stop doing this but early on yeah I did have to I did struggle with, with the whole writing for other people because my first few demos I'd, I'd, I'd take them to my publisher and they'd go yeah it's really good but it sounds like Nick Kershaw and I'm sort of like oh great okay it's kind of going to but alright oh, okay I see what you mean but it wasn't just because I was singing it. It was because singing the demos. It's just because the, the way the chords were going and the way the tune. So I had to, yeah, I, I did spend a lot of time listening to pop music because I, I didn't really write pop music. I got kind of lucky with a with a few songs. That, um, but but sort of generic, the kind of mu music that was getting covered all the time and the when uh, you could deliver to artists. In some ways, had to be quite generic and singing about something, you know, something anybody can sing. Because if you're restricting it to a certain subject, then you know who's going to sing it. It's just, and I found that difficult as well. So ultimately, it turned out not to be the right career move. I don't think, although I had a bit of luck down the down the road. Now, for you now, you're writing. How have you evolved? Because, once again, you're not Nick Kershaw on Top of the Pops, a young guy on the video with the crazy suit. You're a grown man. You've lived through life. You know, mm. we all, and we all mature. Has your writing changed a lot? Are you more introspective now? Do you feel you have something more to say? How has it changed for you? Um, yes, it has changed. It, it's changed. It, it's gone through various changes over the years. I mean, there was... Um, lyrically, it's, it's definitely changed. I, I spent most of the, the 80s trying not to write about 
anything that I actually cared about or or anything that would give me away because I, I kind of had imposter syndrome and I, I kind of I figured that if I wrote about myself people would think um, would would find me out. I'd, I'd be, you know, ah, I got you. Um, so I kind of I, I wrote about I don't know Darwin or saving whales or or the City of Angels, Los Angeles, or I, wrote, I just wrote about stuff that wasn't um, about you know it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't about love. It wasn't about sex. It was about I mean. So I kind of—it was a bit of a strange. You know, I, was, I ended up looking, I'm looking, looking through newspapers for things to write about, which is—it's just nuts. Uh, and and then sort of, then I tried to write a pop lyric. When I started writing for other people, I started trying to write pop lyrics and trying to figure out what they were. Um, and then it suddenly occurred to me: the easiest possible thing to write about is is what you know and 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 how you feel. And, and what you're going through, or what you've been through, or what a friend's been through, or, or so it just became a lot easier. So from the sort of end of the nineties onwards, I've, I've, the, the songs have been much more personal and much. I guess when you get more confidence about yourself, you can do that because you're not so worried about getting found out. Um, so yeah, the lyrics have got more introspective, more personal, um, and I think more humorous as well. I, I do like to slip a bit of humour in there because life is, is is ridiculous most of the time and it, I like to stick the absurd in there um, musically yeah I guess I've changed I, I go in and out of things I, go, I, I, I became aware I was getting quite known for being a smart ass with, with chords and the way my melodies went over you know changed and the way my chords modulated and and the way I changed key and, and all that kind of stuff, and there was a period when I when I was writing that I was just doing that just to show off, you know, just to be a smartass, and it, and to the detriment of the music. Um, and then I went through a period of just writing songs on a guitar. So and, and guitar songs are different, you know, because your fingers go in certain places, and and the when it, a song that's easy to play on the guitar is a completely different kind of song. And they were much simpler, and and I did a couple of albums like that. And now I don't. I every time I write a song, I I, I don't know how to write a song. I I, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, but they all they all happen in a different way. So I kind of I just let them happen. They either come to me or they don't. Um, and and it's and usually the just the, the refinement of the song. I. Um, it's just a process of, of just mucking about and just in my potting shed here in my studio you know um, but I've got to, I've, I've acquired techniques over over the years for for writing lyrics and stuff that I'll I'll, I'll, I'll always write a, a really quick lyric just to kind of get the the bones of the of the song together so it's a skeleton um so it's just got the rhyming scheme, it's got the meter, and it's 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 in the rhythm of the words, and it's just this is how the words sit in the song, and then I'll tweak it and tweak it and tweak it until it's something that makes sense, and it's sometimes quite amazing when how little you have to do um, before it actually does start making sense. Now you said you're you're recording your home, but you recorded at Abbey Road Studios. What was that like? Mm. I've, I've recorded Abbey Road a few times over the years. It's it's a it's a special place. It really is. It's um it's it just it just kind of the Beatles are coming out, you know, just seeping out of the walls. It's just it's got such a lot of history there. And you'd walk down a corridor and you'd bump into this sort of lump of metal with big sort of faders on it. You think, well, what's that? I said, oh, that's Sergeant Pepper was recorded on that. Said, oh, okay. <laughs> just lying in the corridor. Um, and it, and it's a place where everybody in there knows what they're doing, which is kind of the you know you know you're going to get a, get good results. If if you don't get good results in Abbey Road Studio, then you shouldn't have been going in there in the first place, really. <laughs> now you have the tour coming up later this year. No glitz, just the hits, other bits. 
How do you formulate that? What are you going to play on that tour? And what's how's that different from you said it's different from the tour through Germany? Or are you, are you doing that tour in Germany too? It'll, it'll be similar. It won't. Yeah, it'll, that might be. I might tweak it a bit for the UK. But I mean, the thing is, I, I, I play lots of festivals um, and and a few one-off shows and stuff. I've now I haven't done a tour with my band in certainly not in the UK um, for about eleven years. So it's it's quite. A, uh, and and what's great to do, doing it in in front of your own crowd is that you can you can take a few risks and you can you can play a few more obscure tunes and and just play things that you haven't played before. But I've got to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know because I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> <laughs> but there will be hits <laughs> because I like playing them. Now I didn't used to, but I do now. We enjoy playing the hits, and you just enjoy sharing them with with an audience. It's just a great thing. But um, but there will be songs from my, from the last forty years, and and some of which I've never played live. Now, how does that make you feel? I mean, you said it's great, but you know, you sit there, and you know, I made out to your songs, and now I'm a married man. You know, and we, we just you've touched. <laughs> I mean, there's probably people who have conceived one of your albums and then their kid shows up and then their kid's grandkid shows up i mean as an yeah. artist that must be, must be such a great feeling because you know the 80s to people my age that that's what we live for man but the 80s have made a huge comeback i'm on facebook there's like 35 year old girls i know who listen to my show like yeah. they love the 80s i mean as an artist did you think that the music would stay this long i mean just would still be touching people i mean of course you wanted to do that you wrote it but did you think yeah. it would still be this? Now there's this whole new wave coming of new wave. No, I didn't. I didn't know. Not really. I didn't expect to be t t touring and um, um, playing festivals and those songs at the age of sixty-five. No, that didn't. That didn't occur to me. Um, and I don't really understand it. I do get asked quite often why the eighties were so possible, but pop popular. Um, I don't know. I think because it, it, you could always find something for you in the eighties. There was the, because the the genres were all over the place. There wasn't. There, there's no kind of one eighties genre. It, it it could have been big hair rock. It could have been ska. It could have been blues. It could have been um, R and B. It could have been anything. There was so many different kinds of music that you just switch one radio station on and you'd hear everything. You know, there, there'd be something for everybody there. So maybe that that's one of the reasons, but I don't know. It was kind of the, at, at the end it, of a sort of is it was it was a dying age really because it you, it was it, it was an age where people really really completely immersed themselves in 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 the music and the act and the album and the lyrics and and everything, and they got really involved in it. Whereas now it seems to be, I don't know if this is unfair, but it seems to be kind of background music or it just seems to be something to do something else to it's be something to do your homework to it's something to play video games to it's something to to um just it's just it, it's, it's just an accompaniment to life rather than life itself you know so but i have i have i have no actual answers as to why it's, so, it's still so popular I'm, I'm it's like looking a gift gift horse in the mouth really i'm just very grateful for it I have two more questions. One, what would you say is the highlight of your career? I mean, if you, if you could break it down and say this, this was, it doesn't get better than this. What was the highlight of yeah. your career? Wow. I don't know. Oh, that's, 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 that's pretty tricky. I've, there's been so many. I don't, I don't know if it's just one. And also, that you, you the, there's the feeling that I'd like to think it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's always possible there's a phone call that's going to just come around and come in a few days time that's going to go hey Nate do you fancy doing this and then what amazing um but I know I mean god sit sitting in in a studio recording with Elton John that was just in, insane that 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 was that's got to be a highlight um how did you meet him I mean, how did that come about I met, I met him because I was I was doing a, a show at Wembley Stadium in '84 um, called the Summer of '84, and he was headlining it. And he always takes, he, 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 and even now he's incredibly interested and 
engage with with new artists and he, he loves being involved with new artists and I, I really admire that in him but he was playing in Paris and I was doing some promo over there and he he found out that I was there and invited me to a gig and we went to the gig and hung out a bit um, and then I, 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 just various things I, just, I kind of went went over for, for for lunch a few times and just hung out with him and and uh, yeah he was he was just brilliant to me he was just re such a such a support and a champion for me and in really encouraging um and really sweet to me um yeah and i kind of uh, and we bumped into each other all the time and I just, I, I, for some reason we just bumped into each other all the time I, I remember bumping into him in Tower, Tower Records in LA he just kind of he was buying some records and I'm Elton <laughs> um, yeah so he it was, then that was a really short period of time that was kind of from about um, 84 to about 80, 89 maybe I toured with him in 89 I did, I did a, his European tour with him um, and then didn't didn't really see him again until we did the duets album in in ninety, and the last time I saw him was his, was two thousand and five I think when he when he got married to David first time. And final question: Earlier you said you were going to tell a story possibly about why you went longer in the studio during the recording of your first album, <laughs> oh. and you said you get to that. And now I want to know because yeah. it piqued interest oh, okay. in me. It was no, it's not, it's not that. It, 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 there's nothing salacious or anything going on. It, it was um, so I'm doing top. Of the, I'm, I've I've done my first album. My first album's out. It's it's. I'm in the process of recording my second album, but I'm still promoting the first one. And I'm I'm, I'm at top of the pops. I can't remember what song I'm doing at the top of the pops, but I'm sitting there in rehearsals, and I get a tap on my shoulder, and it's Mark King. Uh, from level 42 and he's he's saying hello mate and we hadn't met and I've, i was a big fan i used to go and watch him back in in in, in, in little clubs when they started started out in sort of 1981 1982 so we got chatting and he said um what are you doing now are you recording i said yeah i'm recording i'm recording new albums he said, got anything i can play on so i thought wow blimey um and i'd done all the bass already i, I so i thought well it there isn't anything that I can dug in here. So I wrote a song for him. I wrote a song called Easy on the, on the second album. Um, but the only time we could get him into the studio was was about nine o'clock at night, um, by which time, you know, Peter Collins would... would he'd, he'd, he would have... He would have given up. Uh, by half seven, he starts looking at his watch and then it's time to go home, you know. So this is a big deal for and, and Peter didn't really know level forty two and said, "Is it really? Are we going to stay for nine o'clock?" And what? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> so he came and and his one stipulation. I said, "Can we get you anything? Do you want anything?" He said, "Just nice bottle of red wine, blah blah blah." So we we just we, we had a couple of bottles of red wine and we played for about three or four hours, by which time. Peter Collins was like unconscious in a in a chair in the back of the studio, <laughs> but he did it, and it was a, it was a great. You talk about highlights of my career. That was one of. That's another one. That was that was such a great night, and and just sitting there listening to Mark King play his bass, and it's playing with him, playing the rhythm track with him, and 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 then we'd finish it, and you would go wow, and and you say, and then he'd say, do you want me to overdub it? And I'm like, right, really. Yeah, so he double-tracked the whole thing. It's like, note for note. Amazing. Well, that's awesome, man. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And people, just so you know, more on me got on early thinking that I've forgotten about the uh, time difference, the uh, daylight savings time. But Nick jumped on earlier then. It was great. So anyway, so people, go see his website. It's N-I-K-Kershaw. And it's .net. You're a .net guy. My website's .net too, because someone yep. took .com. I'm like, uh, so uh, anything else? Uh, what's what else is going on? You got the tour coming up, and are you working on anything new? Yeah, I've got songs from the shelf part two coming out in a, in a, in in a, a few weeks time, um, and it's just just festivals, and I'm, I've got to get myself got got to get stuck into the next album. Really, I've got I, I need to do something new. Don't know what it's going to be, but. 
it will come to me. That's awesome. So it people go go check out Nick. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 950 episodes there. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, that's at coopertalk. Instagram, it's at coopertalk1. Don't forget, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.